<clears throat> so for those of you perhaps that are listening and watching via the internet, along with our congregation, turn with, turn with me this morning to 1 Peter chapter 3. <clears throat> If you do not have a Bible, <clears throat> we do want you to follow along. It makes the understanding of the scriptures uh, quite a bit more palatable. And we have pew Bibles. It's on page 1015 in your pew Bibles. That's the easy southern version. I preach from the New King James. Not a lot of difference, but uh, just keep that in mind if you would. There are some differences, and uh, remember now that the Word of God is uh, infallible and inerrant in its original manuscripts. What we have before us is an English translation, very good English translations for the most part, but they are translations nonetheless. <clears throat> so if you're tuning in to listen or watch this morning, and for those of you that are our guest, we preach and teach expositionally at Flat Creek in just about every service. Uh, we select a book, prayerfully select a book, and begin to preach and teach through that book. Uh, this is the 53rd message in First Peter, and um, we finished Romans a couple of years ago, had 200 messages in the book of Romans, so please bear that in mind. It is, <clears throat> in my opinion, the best way to study the Word of God because it forces you into passages of Scripture that we would ignore. We are emotional beings, and we like certain passages and don't like other passages. And so for pastors, it's important because it forces us as pastors into passages that we don't like either. And so we're in a passage that is somewhat difficult, not in its uh, exegesis, not its in, in its interpretation, but just the fact that we are required to uh, live like Christ as he as Peter mentions here, is, is, a, uh, is a tall order, and we'll look at that this morning. Picking up with verse 8 and reading through verse 12, we have these words. Finally, or in conclusion, he is concluding a long passage on submission, which began back in verse 12 of chapter 2. I will say this, the chapter and verse divisions are not inspired. They were added for clarity. They are unclear here in 1 Peter. In my opinion, chapter 3 should have picked up with verse 12 of chapter 2 and completed here in verse 12 of chapter 3. But that's just my opinion. You are welcome to agree or disagree because, again, chapter and verse divisions are not inspired. Finally, or therefore, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another, love as brothers, be tenderhearted, be courteous, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, a blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing for, and he quotes from Psalm 34, <clears throat> he who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. May God bless the reading of his holy word, and let's go to his throne of grace in prayer. <clears throat> Father, encourage us through these words, and yes, challenge us. And we do pray, Father, that where 
we are ignorant. We ask that you would forgive us and that you would increase our knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And through this passage of Scripture that we commit to become more like our Savior, in whose name we pray, amen. So this morning we're going to focus on uh, verses 9 through 12, the good life. And in this passage, we're actually in verse 8, we're taught that we have an obligation to bless. And this is a, this is a specific passage that focuses on the church, those of us that are members of a local church. We, first of all, have an obligation to bless. And then in verse 9 and the verses following, we have an obligation to forgive. Peter moves from the positive attributes in verse 8. <clears throat> Those are uh, the inner transformation. He talks about the oneness of mind. He talks about uh, brotherliness. He talks about kind-heartedness. He talks about humility and compassion. He is teaching these uh, persecuted believers across Asia Minor about the uh, fact that every person, every person that claims the name of the Lord Jesus and is born again from the Spirit of God will withstand persecution. Now, he's also going to talk about affliction. There's a difference between affliction and persecution. Persecution is the, are the trials that you and I withstand because we're born again. Affliction includes persecution, but can also be illnesses or maladies. Now, keep this in mind. If you're listening, say amen. amen. Even unsaved person, people become ill. It is not unique to believers. And even unsaved people are healed. It is not unique to believers. So that's important as we look at the context of the scripture that we have before us. Now he talks about these positive attributes in verse 8. And then he talks about some negative attributes in verse 9. And reading again he says, Not returning evil for evil, or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing knowing that you were called to this. As believers, this is what we're called to. We're not called to revile. We're not called to return evil for evil. We're not called to curse. We're not called to gossip. We're called to be of one mind. Do you want to be treated with dignity? I think all of us here desire to be treated with dignity. So on what basis do you formulate your belief that you are, as a human being, worthy of dignity? Why do you believe that? If for any other reason than mankind is created in the Imago Dei, then dignity is a fool's errand. If we have evolved from uh, microscopic uh, amoeba for millions of years, it's a fool's errand. Well, there's no more dignity in a human being than there would be in a dog, and certainly no more than being in a cat. Retaliation, then, would be the norm. 
And retaliation would be required to right all wrongs. But that's not what Peter said. First slide, if you would. Now I'm going to read. I've brought a couple of books with me this morning. I hope to open with this one and close with the, with the other one on the thrill of orthodoxy. This is uh, Edmund Clowney's commentary on 1 Peter. <clears throat> I've used it several times. Uh, Clowney is now with the Lord. He was a theologian in residence at First Presbyterian Church in Charlottesville for the last few years of his life. He writes about verses 8 and 9 this way. God's calling of the Christian appears in a marvelous contrariness. Opposition and hatred cannot thwart the life of blessing. Even when Christians are cursed, they are to bless. This is how Christians get even. They pay back evil with good. They pay back insult with blessing. This, of course, was the teaching of Jesus as well as his example. Look back to verse 23 of chapter 2. Speaking of the Lord Jesus, it says, verse 22, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. That's what our Lord did. That's what we're called to do. That's what Peter was doing. In fact, Jesus went on to say, but I tell you in the Sermon on the Mount, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be the sons of your Father in heaven. Christians are free from vindictiveness because they trust God's justice. But they're also free for blessing because they know God's goodness. Again, this was the standard apostolic instruction. And we're going to look at a couple of those here in just a moment. 1 Thessalonians 5 and Romans 12 and others that are found there. It is not only in the world that Christians must repay evil with good. They must do it in the church too. Certainly this attitude of loving humility will provide the strongest rebuke to the conscience of a fellow Christian. This is a difficult passage. In verse 9, it says that we have an obligation to forgive. Peter writes emphatically that regardless of how you are treated, regardless of how I am treated, don't retaliate. Now, this is not the natural human way. It requires the supernatural spirit of God. The Christian response is non-retaliation. We are to abstain from vengeance. We are to abstain from revenge. That is not only clear in Peter's writing, and if you know anything about Peter, Peter was a man dead set on revenge. Remember, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he pulled out his sword and cut off the, the ear of the high priest. Revenge. I can't do that, preacher. Well... Peter says you can, because Peter did. Literally, verse 9 says, stop returning evil for evil. Don't do these things, 
And if you are doing these things, stop it. It's a very parental instruction. It is a very pastoral instruction. Don't do them. And if you are, stop. And if you are, forgive. Romans 12, well, the word evil, there's uh, kakos, which is a bad quality or disposition. can be a bad attitude, and I know all of you here this morning never have a bad attitude. I do. And so we have to be careful of our disposition, our inherent badness. In Matthew 5, and we're not going to turn there this morning, but in verses 38 through 42... Jesus talked about uh, setting things right with your brother as quickly as possible. And he says, you need to be like your father, and you need to forgive your adversary quickly. And this, of course, is embodied in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul, in Romans 12, verses 14 through 17, or 14 and 17, said, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and curse not. And we covered this in detail when we were preaching through the book of Romans. In 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul writes to the church there. He says, see that no one repays another uh, evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for all men. So there's no distinction. Saved, unsaved. We don't get to pick and choose. Well, the Lord didn't pick and choose. Now remember, hopefully we'll finish down through verse 12 uh, this morning and we'll start in verse 13 next Sunday morning and we're into a passage of scripture actually that is evangelistic in its tone. And Peter's going to talk about that when we get down to uh, verse 15, sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Now how do you do that? You don't retaliate. You don't seek to counter the evil in someone else's life with additional evil. If you want to be heard with the gospel of Jesus Christ, submit. Again, difficult. It's a uh, tutorial on evangelism. And the prime example for us in non-retaliation and the prime example for evangelism is God's love for us. In that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Don Carson went so far as to write, God's sending love is to be admired not because it extended to so big a thing as the world, but to so bad a thing as the world. Not to so many people, but to such wicked people. We forget that. God did not retaliate. He became incarnate for you and I. Now, it goes without saying we should not think like the world. <clears throat> the thinking that is given to us by the Spirit of God through the Word of God is to be rooted and grounded in the truth of God. 
The truth of God conforms our minds, and that's what Peter is basically instructing us here, as Paul did, and conforms our minds to the mind of Christ. And this requires submission to the authority of the Word of God. It doesn't come any other way. It comes through submission. Next slide, if you would. Now, what the Word of God does, it, it gives us God's perspective, which is radically different. That's what Clowney just wrote. Radically different from the perception of the world. We want to share God's perspective. And because our thinking is to be formed by the truth, any retaliation, regardless of how small, hinders the sharing of our gifted faith. Now, if you're listening, say amen. amen. Flat Creek ought not to believe something just because the pastor said it. We ought to believe because the pastor says it from the Word of God. There's a difference. As members of a church, as part of the flock, and Peter's already, already talked about that, God requires that you and I honor those that he has gifted to the church for preaching and teaching, and he's also required that you take his words seriously. Now, this may apply to your pastor at home if you're here visiting with us or those that may be listening. It's required as long as they are, uh, uh, as they honor the word of God and proclaim it as the truth of God, it is required. He that has ears to hear, let him hear. Peter's teaching his people the same way. God has set men as shepherds over a particular flock. Now, pastors are under shepherds. We're not the great shepherd. We talked about that at the end of chapter 2. We don't speak ex cathedra as the Roman Catholics believe the Pope does. We don't speak with the authority or infallibility of Jesus Christ because I'm a, a sinner saved by grace. But we are responsible, like you, to submit to the Word of God. That's why the uh, expository preaching is so very important. So I am responsible to proclaim the Word as it is written, verse by verse, precept by precept. Now, Peter is writing a pastoral epistle. In fact, Clowney said at the outset of our study that 1 Peter is the most complete pastoral epistle in the New Testament, even more complete than 1 and 2 Timothy in the book of Titus. This is pastoral, which means he is writing to comfort and to challenge those that he is writing to. When pastors preach the word, when they study diligently, when they pray earnestly, when they labor continually to rightly divide the word of God, churches are to hear and act. Now, how, what, what, is, what does this have to do with the passage, Christ? 
Well, there's a reason that Peter quotes Psalm 34. We're going to look at that here in just a moment. So Peter is writing, not in his own authority, but he is going back to the Old Testament and the authority of Psalm 34. He that has ears to hear, Jesus said, let him hear. Peter would have heard this dozens of times when Jesus was on earth. And remember, Peter says in verse 9, remember that you're called to this. This is our calling. This is not a choice. This is our calling. And what we're called to is blessing. Now verse 8 teaches an obligation to bless, a committing to responsibility within the church. And verse 9, we've talked about, teaches an obligation to forgive. And we're to forgive even unbelievers because we're called to this. Jesus did. Jesus does. And these two verses preface the believer's good life. So let's look at that. Next slide. We read verses 10 through 12. We're going to go back and look at uh, Psalm 34 here in just a minute. Uh, Actually, I want you to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 21 to begin with because that is the reason for Psalm 34. Go back to 1 Samuel uh, 21. Living the good life in peace. And that's key. Not just living the good life, but living the good life in peace. Now, do you get spam emails? Oh, yeah, buddy, you get them. I get a lot more spam emails than I get emails from that are not spam. And I got one this week, and the title of the email was this. Are you bored? Get a tattoo. So I rushed out and got a tattoo. You can't see it. And you won't see it. But that is part of the summary of our culture's understanding of a good life. It's a quick fix to quell our hatred of boredom. It's the 11th commandment. Thou shalt not be Bored. Is that a band-aid for the good life? The right attitude is one of harmony, Peter writes. It's one of sympathy, it's kindness, it's peace. And our response is to be non-retaliatory. You want to love life and see good days? Everyone here does. Well, what you gain out of life is predicated on how you respond inside, your attitude. And if the attitude is not right, life will never deliver to you the peace of God. You will constantly be in turmoil. 
you will constantly be thinking that you are bored. It requires a right response to evil, to misjudgment, to condemnation, to cruelty and unkindness. We'll go back to 2 Peter in just a moment. I want to pick up with this. But these two verses that we've been reading, verses 8 and verses uh, 9, are a preface to the good life. And they are preface to the life that David calls good while he was being pursued by the Philistines. Affliction. David is, has been anointed king, but he's not king. He is fleeing Saul. And he made his way. We're not going to read all of it, but in uh, verse 1 of chapter 21, it says, Now David came to Nob, to Himelech the priest, and Himelech was afraid when he met David, and said to him, Why are you alone and no one is with you? Now Nob was the residence of the priest, or the, or the village where the, the priest lived, uh, about mm, a mile or so north of Jerusalem. So David is by himself. He is fleeing from Saul. In fact, he has just been blessed by Jonathan, and Jonathan tells him as they kiss each other and say their goodbyes, Jonathan basically says, he says, May the Lord be with you, between you and me, and between your descendants and my descendants forever. And David makes his way to Nob, and he appears before the high priest, who is a man by the name of Ahimelech. Long story short, David is hungry. And he asks if there's any food, and Ahimelech says, the only thing I have is the showbread, the table of the showbread. In fact, it is the bread of the presence, as it's called in uh, Exodus chapter 34. Twelve loaves of bread that were baked each day and placed out on a table that were only eaten by the priest. Well, David's not a priest. And it was forbidden, again the law, for anyone to eat of the showbread other than the priest. So Ahimelech says, we have the showbread, but you can't eat it. And look if you would, in verse 5, it says, Then David answered the priest and said, Truly women have been kept from us for about three days since I came out, and the vessel of the young men are holy. And the bread is in effect common, even though it was consecrated in this vessel this day. So the priest gave him the holy bread. Jesus recalled this in Luke chapter 6. So Jesus read the Old Testament. Peter read the Old Testament. We ought to read the Old Testament. It is the Word of God. Now, if you would, verse 8, David said to Ahimelech, Is there not here a hand or... Uh, a spear? Is there, is there not here on hand a spear or a sword? He doesn't have any weapons. For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me because the king's business requires haste. So the priest said, The sword of Goliath the Philistine is here. Now, what do you know about David and Goliath? David slew Goliath. We are told earlier in 1 Samuel that David slipped on the armor of Saul, and it was way too heavy for him, but he did pick up the sword of Goliath 
after he, uh, uh, after he killed him, and what did he do with it? He cut off the head of Goliath. Well, apparently, he was a young boy then. He left the sword, and Saul, or one of his henchmen, picked it up, and it's a knob now. So the priest said, the sword of Goliath, listing whom you killed in the valley of Elah. Why do you think that Ahimelech is afraid of David? David is a warrior. There it is, wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you'll take it, and if you'll take that, take it, for there's no other one except that that is here. David said, There's none like it, give it to me. So he takes the sword of Goliath. Verse 10. David arose, fled that day from Saul, before Saul went to Achish, the king of Gath. Okay? What's the king of Gath? King of Gath. Gath was the essentially capital city of the Philistines. So David goes right from the coals into the fire. And he's carrying with him the sword of Goliath. Do you think that Achish recognized the sword? Oh, yeah, buddy. So David, and David does, does this on purpose, as we'll see. You say, well, David's not thinking too sharply here. Well, yes, he is. And we'll see how in just a moment. And Achish said to him, verse 11, or the servants rather said, uh, is this not David, king of the land? Did they not sing of him to one another in dances, saying, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his ten thousands? And David took these words to heart and was very much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before him. He's got the sword. They notice the sword. So what David does is he feigns being mad. He feigns being ignorant. He feigns being insane. He pretended madness in their hands. He scratched on the doors of the gate and let his saliva fall down on his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Look, you, you see that this man is insane. Why have you brought him to me? Have I need of madmen that you may be brought this fellow up to play the madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? Get him out of here. I don't care whose sword he's got. Get him out of here. David therefore departed, verse 1, chapter 22, and he escaped to the cave of, of Adullam which was a favorite hiding place of David. So when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him, and everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, everyone who was discontented, <coughs> gathered to him. This is David's army. They're not professionals. They're the dregs of society. This is the grace of God. So he became captain over them, and there were about 400 men. So it is in this scenario that we see 
the reason that David writes Psalm 34. Now go with me to Psalm 34. One of the things that we learn from this is that Peter had been studying this psalm. The apostles in the New Testament that wrote the New Testament, and I, obviously Peter is one of them, and then um, Paul and the others, were men that read. And they read the Old Testament. That's important for us to remember. Next slide, if you would, brother. <clears throat> We've talked about the background. Now, what David does here is he dwells on the perseverance of the Lord and the salvation in his hour of peril. He is writing this, perhaps, from the cave of Adullam. We don't know, but certainly he is recalling this particular incident in his life. Spurgeon divided this psalm into two sections. The first ten verses were he entitled a hymn. In the last twelve verses, he said, it was a sermon that David wrote. This is an acrostic psalm. This is important. An acrostic psalm is one that, where each verse begins with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, which in this case is the, is the letter Aleph. And then the, the first word of the second verse would be the word Baal or Bel, so forth and so on, all the way through only 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. Psalm 119 is perhaps the most famous acrostic psalm. Now, why is that important? It is important because praise is orderly. It is not chaotic. It's not a light show. It's not a sound show. It is orderly and structured. That's the Word of God. Praise is orderly and structured. If we had time this morning, we could go to the book of Revelation, we could look at chapters 4 and 5, and we could see an orderly proclamation of praise around the throne of God. We could see a structured proclamation of the Messiah in the realms of the street of gold. That's important. The hymn begins in verse 1. David writes this. We're not going to go through the entire psalm, but just a few of them here as we tie it back into 1 Peter chapter 3. Now remember... He had fled from Saul. He had broken the law by eating the showbread. He had taken the sword of, of Goliath, and he fled to the country of his arch enemies, the Philistines. He went in before Achish, the king of Gath. 
He feigned madness. He then is told by, the, or Achish's servants are told to get him out of here. And he flees back now to a cave. And 400 of the dregs of society follow him. No priests, no prophets, no good guys in white hats. All of these men are fighting. One of the great things that stands out to me in 1 Samuel 22 and verse 2 is men with debt. That's the grace of God. And this is what he writes. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. Here's a man in affliction. A man in persecution. I will bless the Lord. His praise will continually be in my mouth. So what David does as he starts is he vows to bless the Lord regardless of the circumstances. And he's also inviting us to praise him as you read through this beautiful psalm. Now verse 6 is one of the more powerful verses here and look at what it says. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. Then look at verse 8. O taste and see that the Lord is good. Now here's a man that is hiding from Saul. Saul is seeking his life. He is hiding and he says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. Why do you think this uplifted Peter's soul? Because Peter is in Rome and he's being sought and eventually will be killed. Next slide. In verses 11 through 14, he begins his sermon. And in verses 11 through 14, it, it, uh, it blends into what Peter has written for us in uh, verses 10 through 12, actually verses 12 through 16. So one of the things that Spurgeon said in the sermon that he preached about this particular passage is that sermons are instructive for the good life. That's what David is doing. Verse 11, come you children, listen to me, I will teach you the fear of the Lord. He who is the man who desires life and loves many days that he may see good. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from dis speaking deceit. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their cry. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off, cut off the remembrance of them from the earth. These are the words that Peter quoted in the third chapter. David closes out verses 15 through 22 uh, closes out his sermon, but look, if you would, at verse 18. 
The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart. Not a haughty spirit. And this is one of the key themes to 1 Peter. We'll see it as Peter brings it to a summary in chapter 5 where he says, God gives grace to the humble, but resists the proud. It's taken from verse 18. The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and save such as have a contrite spirit. A broken spirit. The closer we become to the Lord, the more broken our spirit will come, will, will become. So in these, and just these are just some select verses that we've looked at here, but when we what Peter is saying and what David is saying here is if you want to live the good life, you've got to prepare for affliction. Prepare for it. It's coming. And Peter quotes from Psalm 34 because he understands the richness of David's affliction. Do you see that? I hope you do. Taste and see that the Lord is good. And in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 3, Peter says, If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. These folks are under affliction. These folks are under persecution. These folks are being sought by the Roman government. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Does that sound like someone that, does that sound like the type of praise that we give over to the Trinity? Sometimes it is. Oftentimes it's not. So Peter here is appealing to embattled believers that have afflictions. Peter here 2,000 years ago as he wrote this, as David wrote this 3,000 years ago, is appealing to you and I here at Flat Creek this morning that are enduring afflictions or persecutions. The very thing that David calls us to in Psalm 34, Peter calls us to in 1 Peter. And he says you're to do this in the bad times and the bad circumstances and afflictions that the Lord is good. It's easy to praise the Lord when you're feeling good and when your bank account is full and flush and you're not in debt. Easy. But so often we miss the grace of God as God moves in the hearts and lives of people that are not that blessed. If you love life and you want good days, there are five ways. We're going to close with this this morning. Go back to 1 Peter chapter 3. Next slide, brother. Five things that we can take away here from what Peter has quoted from Psalm 34. Verse 10. For he who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil. Oh, my word. Oh, preacher. Preacher. First thing we have to learn is to control our tongue. James would write this, of course, and the Lord said this in his teaching. In 
the first couple of verses of chapter 2. Turn back there. Let's read those again. Peter reminds the, the, the readers here, therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, all evil speaking. As newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. So there's a list here that Peter is tabulating. And he's talking about accusing individuals. He's talking about denouncing individuals. In this particular passage, verses uh, 8 through 12, he's talking about those people within the church. Don't do this, he said. And if you do it, stop it. And ask for forgiveness. The evil speech that he uses here, the phrase that's found, let him refrain his tongue from evil, means gossip, it means slander, it means boasting, it means lying, broken promises, vows, rudeness, even the abuse of God's name. How rude our culture has become. Men, hold doors open for ladies. How rude our culture has become. And that's just one example. Do you think that blesses God? It does not. Control of the tongue means that we speak the truth in love. It means we praise and we fear God. It means we bless everyone, saved and unsaved, because we are in the image of God. The first thing, control your tongue. You know, if we control our tongues, the rest of this falls into line. Number two and three, verse 11, first part of that, let him turn away from evil and do good. Those two things. Turn from evil, repent, and do good. Two behaviors are required in order that we do this. First one is always holiness. Holiness is the bridge to right behavior. You can judge how holy your life is or someone else's life by whether they gossip, slander, boast, have broken promises, vows, whether they're rude, whether they abuse God's name. That is an indication they're unholy. One of the reasons God never sins that God can't sin. We've talked about that uh, uh, quite a bit. And always does what is righteous is because he is holy. It is his nature. It is natural for him, not for us. And the second thing Peter says here is, quoting from Psalm 34, is do good to others. Interestingly here, this phrase, doing good to others, found 12 times in the New Testament, is found six times in 1 Peter. So Peter honed in on doing good for others. We're not going to read this, these passages, but they're listed there for you. Holiness is a separation from the evils of the world. Come ye out of them and be holy says the Lord. Doing good 
means we engage the world. And through our engagement of the world, we seek to reverse the evil that is found in the world. Peter talks about this in verses 14, 15, chapter 2. He talks about submitting to governments and submitting to employers. Paul would say, Galatians 6, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. This is the household of faith. We ought to go out of our way to make the folks here at Flat Creek, those that are associated with Flat Creek, and those of you that are our guests, we want to remind you that we're here to try, with the grace of God and the power of the Spirit of God, to do good to all. That's what we are called to. Our charge to do good is not a perception of good works. It's not the perception of what we do, but rather it is in the gut of our attitudes. Remember? Right attitudes. It's not the doing, it's the attitude. Jesus taught this in the Sermon on the Mount. We are not holy in nature. So we must have the life-changing power of the Spirit of God to make us like Christ. Now here's the thing. Go to the next slide if you would, brother. Peter is not calling us to be naive. We're not to be naive. Jesus himself charged his disciples in Matthew chapter 10. He said, I'm going to send you out as sheep among wolves, and as you go, I want you to be wise as serpents. Don't be naive. Understand the hatred of the world. He told his disciples in the upper room, if the world hates you, it's going to, it, it hates you because it hates me. Don't be naive. But you're to do this because... I am commanding you to do this. Number four and five is to seek peace. Notice what he says here. The latter part of verse 11, let him seek peace and pursue it. The author of Hebrews said, pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Unholy people are not going to see the Lord. Everyone is not born again. Everyone that claims to be born again is not born again. You need to write that with yourself. You need to be sure, as, as Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, he said you need to examine yourself and see whether or not you're in the faith. Just because you may have walked an aisle or prayed a prayer or any of these things, been involved in all manner of things within a church, does not mean you're born again. That is a work of the Spirit of God in you that convicts you of your sin brings you to faith in Jesus Christ and you receive him as Savior and your life is changed then and forever. Holiness causes us to pursue peace. That's what God did. That's what a holy God did. He pursued peace in Jesus. For you and I, lost rebellious sinners. He made peace through the blood 
of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, sometimes it's not, sometimes there are people where it's impossible to attain peace for one reason or another. Sometimes it's us. Sometimes it's not. And making peace requires two parties. So what do we do then? We don't retaliate. We don't seek vengeance. As Jesus said, reconcile quickly with your adversary. While you're on the way to court. In other words, your adversary may want to sue you. Reconcile with your adversary. That's what God did for us in Jesus. Reconciliation is an act of peace. It's the fruit of doing good. Let's do it quickly. And Jesus said do it quickly because our emotions, our emotions control probably 75% of what we do, if not more. We get blown out of proportion. We become argumentative. We descend into bitterness. For the eyes of the Lord, verse 12, Peter sums this up, are on the righteous. His ears are open to the prayers, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Peter says the good life is summarized in these five behaviors. That we control our tongues, that we turn from evil, that we do good, that we seek peace and pursue it. Notice it says that we're to pursue peace. We're the ones that are, Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. We're not to wait till somebody seeks peace with us. We are to be the one that takes the initiative. But that's what God did. Now Peter does warn. In the latter part of verse 12, he says, The face of the Lord is against those. Because that's what David said. Our Lord will vindicate his name. We are not to seek vindication. And yet, these are difficult commands. Because we are not born sinners, we're not, we don't lean this way. For saints, we're called to this. Preacher, these are too demanding. What we really need is the mercy of Christ. Well, it is the mercy of Christ. It's the mercy of Christ that's extended to us in his person where he wants to make us like him. That's mercy. Peter's quoting David. And he's invoking much what David uh, had heard, or what Peter rather had heard from the Sermon of the Mount. Now I want to close with a quote uh, from Trevin Wax's little book, The Thrill of Orthodoxy. Great read, by the way. And he talks in 
one of his chapters about, oh, this is too difficult. We read these things, and this is, well, this is way too difficult, preacher. Well, you mean the Lord really wants me to live? Yes, yes, he does. The most common approach today, he writes, to the moral vision of Christianity is to downplay the demands of Jesus by emphasizing his mercy. Yes, Jesus intensified the law by going beyond mere rules to the heart of the lawgiver. In the Sermon on the Mount, he said, You have heard it said, but I say unto you. And yes, his standard is high. But rather than accept the seriousness of Jesus' teaching, we delude it. Surely Jesus realizes that his commands are too high. They're unattainable for all but a select group of Christians. Christ's moral vision of wealth sharing and truth telling and check turning, cheek turning rather, and enemy loving and marriage sustaining and kingdom seeking, it's all a bit too much, is it not? It would be cruel to urge people to obey all these commands, especially to follow the rules that chafe against contemporary sensibilities or, or oppositions that require sacrifice of status or power or take the stances that embarrass the church before the cultural elites. In the end, we can be inspired by the moral vision of Jesus, but only as a high and lofty ideal easily disregarded because, in fact, it is unattainable. The better path, we're told, is to emphasize the mercy of God in all who fall short. And that is a biblical message. We can admire the super-Christians, the monks, the nuns, the pastors, the missionaries who take the words of God seriously, the words of Jesus seriously, rather. But the rest of us live down here in the realm of moral mediocrity. God knows we're frail and fallen creatures who make a mess of things. And we are. <laughs> we just read about David and his minions. Frail, fallen creature. He sets the bar high but doesn't expect us to rise to the standard. His job is to forgive, to overlook our mistakes. And the church is to be the place where God's love just accepts us as we are. So yes, the church is a hospital for sinners. But it's also a school for saints. A place where we experience progress on the journey toward the summit of becoming like Christ. The school is open to all who cross the threshold of repentance and faith. But the school is not for those comfortable in maintaining ignorance or resisting betterment. The grace of God has appeared, Paul wrote, bringing salvation and instructing us to deny godliness and worldly lust. Jesus came to redeem us and to cleanse himself, cleanse to himself a people for his own possession, eager to do good works. He saves and instructs. He redeems us from our past and trains us for the future. Now here's the thing. The demands for the rigor of the demands are rigorous because the goal is magnificent. 
to be like Christ. We're training for a spiritual battle. We're climbing up the steep path toward the mountaintop with the Spirit filling our lungs and empowering our limbs. That is the vision that inspires us. And this is the God who beckons us onward to the good life. What a God we serve. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning. For your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you for the instruction that Peter was so careful to write to those that were scattered abroad uh, across the Roman Empire 2,000 years ago. These words are still relevant and they should be prevalent in our lives today. Have your sweet will, your divine way, the remainder of the service. In Jesus' name we make this prayer. Amen. <coughs> There's a blessing in number six. God told Moses to tell Aaron to use this blessing to bless the children of Israel. It's applicable today to Flat Creek. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. That's what we desire for you this morning. God's face to shine and to give you peace. If you're here today and you do not know the Lord Jesus as your Savior, you don't have peace. You may seem at peace, but the Scripture is very clear. You don't have the peace with God. But you can. That's the gospel. That's the good news. We're going to sing a verse of a hymn here in just a moment. The Lord's spoken to your heart. You do not know the Lord as your Savior. We encourage you to make that right today. God is sovereign, but you're responsible, just as I'm responsible. You're responsible to hear and to obey. How do I do that, preacher? If you make your way out of the pew, and again, this doesn't save you, but we can take you to a private prayer room, lead you to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus. You can leave here this morning with that peace of God that passes all understanding. But you are responsible. As a child of God, the Lord may be leading you into the fellowship of this church. Maybe you know the Lord is Savior and you need to follow him in believer's baptism. We encourage you to follow him and do that today. Maybe here in the Lord leading you by a statement of faith or transfer of a letter or whatever. We encourage you to do that. As a child of God, yes, these are, you know, one of the, one of the, one of the amazing things about the Sermon on the Mount or any of these teachings of Peter and Paul is that if you read them to a crowd of lost people, they'll say these things are impossible, and they are. Yes, they are. They can only be applied to us supernaturally in the person of Jesus Christ. What number, brother? 385. 385. If the Lord's call, uh, called, won't you come as we stand and sing? <laughs>